Heavenly Father, we rejoice with this glorious hope that indeed in our life there is blessing, there is power and forgiveness and deliverance, and there is the hope eternal that we will be with you forever in a perfect place where sin no longer exists and righteousness rules. We pray, Father, O hallowed Father of heaven, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on this earth just as it is being done in heaven right now, perfectly, continually, forever. Capture our hearts, Lord, this morning, for they have been distracted by many things. And turn our eyes Christward, that we might look upon him, the one who is our righteousness, the one who died in our place, not only as our Lord and Savior, but as our friend and companion. Now, blessed spirit, open up the word of God that we might behold wondrous things from your law for the glory of Christ, we pray, amen. At a campground that was rather crowded, there's a group of kids playing near a river and a small girl fell in. It was rather a swift river. There were fences to keep kids away, but you know how that goes. There was a soldier who was also involved in a picnic at the same time and noticed what had happened as the little girl fell in and was being taken down the current to what was, not too far in the distance, a waterfall. The soldier took off his shirt and his boots and jumped into the water and with his amazing strength swam to the little girl and grabbed hold of her finally and turned to make their way back to shore but realized he had spent most of his strength and the current was too strong and they both went over the waterfall. The paper read the next day, he was good, he was willing, but he was not able. And that sad byline seems so true in the realm of religion when people hang on to something that appears to be good and offers much, but it cannot save. In fact, when you study Romans chapter 7, where the law is mentioned almost 30 times in one way or another, it's depicting the fact that the law is good, but the law cannot save. And yet many people are holding on to the fact that their performance, their life, their righteousness will be good enough book of Romans says, no, it won't. For the standard to get into heaven is perfect righteousness measured by Jesus who never sinned and no one can live a life like that. The book of Romans revealed to us that we have been released from the dominant rule and power of the law, 
which once controlled us, that is, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Unless we think that the law is bad, Paul spends time defending the law from verse 6 all the way through verse 13. He says in verse 12, the law is holy and just and it's righteous, it's good. But we are not. And if somehow we think we can be saved by the law, we will indeed in the end be devastated. So the law has lost its power over us, at least that's what it said in chapter six. It no longer is our tyrant. We have, we have three enemies. We have the devil who is above us and the world that is around us and the sin that is within us. And in the book of Romans chapter seven, that sin within is going to be highlighted. Even though you are a believer, sin still resides within. And so the law is not responsible for our sin. It's not responsible for our death. It just shows us that we indeed are sinners. Remember that the law is much like a mirror. You look into it and it shows you the problems but has no power to do anything about it. And even though the law is good and righteous and holy, it cannot make us holy. And so the Apostle Paul is going to give some very frank and straight talk in the book of Romans, especially in this last section of chapter seven, that often seems confusing, but indeed is the heart of the apostle crying out with all believers the lament of this struggle with the sin within the enemy of our soul. It's right to look to the law of God for moral guidance, but it's wrong to look to the law for saving power. That power only comes from Jesus Christ. So let's start at verse 14, and here the Apostle Paul kind of sets the scene for us by simply saying, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. And then he says this, which shocks us, I am sold as a slave to sin. What do you mean by that? I thought chapter six said we've been delivered from that slavery. Verse 18, you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves to righteousness, chapter six tells us. What is this being sold to sin again? By the way, something very interesting happens in the original language. Paul goes from using past tense where he was talking about his former life, pre-conversion, and now he is using present tense verbs to describe his present situation. And unless he is imagining someone else, which I don't think he is, he's talking about his own present struggle as a believer with the sin inside of him. He is not sold totally with utter abandon to sin as a slave, but Remember what it said in chapter six, the person you yield to is the person who lords it over you? Remember that? 
Reckon yourself dead to sin. Yield yourself, your members to God, because if you yield yourself to sin, sin takes control again, even though the tyranny has been broken. So the Apostle Paul makes it clear he's got a battle. He says the law is good, but he can't say that of himself. There is a there is a gra- gravitational pull, like a magnet drawing him, this old nature drawing him back into the old ways. I think a lot of people, when they come to faith in Christ, think that once they are converted and that they are new creatures in Christ, they'll never have the desire to sin again. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, after coming to faith in Christ, I was a bit shocked at some of those first sins that happened post-conversion. And so I got saved again. And then a month or two later, got saved again. And then got saved again. I didn't know what was happening. I thought I never had it, or if I did, I lost it. So I went looking for it once again. I even have carved on a piece of furniture that still sits in my study back home the date of August 1969 where I once again gave myself to Christ. What was the problem? The problem was Romans 7. Didn't quite understand it. To be honest with you, I'm not sure I totally understand it. But I think I have the general flow of what Paul is trying to say to us and what he wants us to grasp. So he laments his own unspiritual state, his broken heart for his own failures. And this is going to dominate the thought of the rest of the chapter all the way to the end. So this is what we might call the believer's dilemma. And it starts out with this idea of Confusion or bewilderment? Look at the very next verse, verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For I want to do, for what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I end up doing. Sounds like the guy is schizophrenic. No, it sounds a lot like me and you. I can't figure myself out, Paul says. I'm a mystery. There's these contradicting emotions. I have these desires that are strong and going in one direction. And yet, on the other hand, I fail. If you just look at the passage from 14 to 15, you've got Paul saying things like this. I want to do what is good. The law is good and I desire to do it. The good I want to do Although I want to do good, he repeats it over and over and over again. Followed by the phrase, I want to, but I don't. And I end up doing the things I hate. Paul, in his confusion, I'm sure was crying out to the Holy Spirit to help him. But one of the interesting things about the latter part of Romans chapter 7 is that there is no mention of the Holy Spirit. He comes strong in chapter eight, and maybe that's a clue for us to understand something about the battle that is happening in his heart. John Wesley said, before I came to Christ, I willingly served sin, 
but after I came to Christ, it was unwillingly, and yet I still sinned. So he says in verse 16, and if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. The irony is my bad actions, which I condemn, establishes the fact that the law is just and holy and good. But there's this ever-deepening anguish because I can't seem to get my behavior to match up to my desires. My desires far exceed my behavior. So I recognize the law of God is ideal. But I also acknowledge that no one can attain to it. Some people think that Paul here is actually trying to, this is a time when Paul was trying to attain his own righteousness by keeping the law. But that's pre-conversion Paul. I think this is an honest, godly individual who is battling the sin within. You see, once you begin to go contrary to the old nature, you begin to feel its power. Again, thinking of a river, if you go with the flow, it doesn't seem so hard to paddle, try to paddle upstream, and it's a different story. One discovers the force of the current not by floating with it, but by rowing against it. And as long as you're going with the flow of the old nature, that's fine. But a believer is one who fights, fights against it. That's another reason why this, this is Paul the believer, because he's not going with the flow. And he's fighting. He's not trying harder to be righteous by the law he is frustrated by the fact that his good desires are not always fulfilled. So you look at verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. There you go. You're a victim, Paul, aren't you? It's not your fault. not my fault. The devil made me do it. It's not me. I want to do this, but... No, that's not really what he's saying. What Paul is saying is I side with God in this. This is not what I want to do. And the new me, in a sense, is not doing this. But there is sin within. Ah, here's the theological point that one must grasp. You see it in verse 17, sin living in me. Verse 20, sin dwells in me. Verse 21, evil is present with me. Sin resides in your soul. It is set up house and it's not planning to leave. Just want you to know that. Even though you came to Christ and you are a new creature in Christ and old things are passing away, there is what the theologians call remaining sin or surviving sin. It doesn't reign but it remains. There's no way to understand Romans chapter seven without this. There's really no way to understand the book of Galatians chapter five without this. So in the confusion and frustration that Paul faces, he acknowledges sin is still there. The rabbis used to say sin begins as a guest and ends as a master of the house. 
You ever had someone come and stay for a while and then they just take over? Hard to get, you're nodding, aren't you? Hard to get rid of them. So the surviving sin is in the soul. Now let me make this clear. There are two powers in your soul, but they're not equal. The sin that remains within is powerful. But the new heart from Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit is more powerful. But the two clash. They are in constant conflict with one another. That's Galatians 5.17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. Now an unbeliever is controlled by the sinful nature and the law is the tyrant. Sin reigns within but for the believer that that rule has been broken. And yet we've got to fight. William Shedd, a great theologian, said the new man cannot completely carry out the desires of his heart. He's frustrated by the flesh in at least two ways. Number one, when he does obey God, which is his desire and general habit, he does not obey God perfectly. Do you ever lament the sin in your obedience? Do you ever lament the sin in your worship? Oh my, I was singing that song and I wasn't thinking about the words. So even in our best situations, there is sin. And then secondly, sometimes we just outright yield to inward corruption and break the law of God. And our hearts weep. I have met the enemy and the enemy is me. Or at least in me. And the battle is on. John Murray, another great theologian, said the regenerate is in conflict with sin, but the unregenerate is complacent to it. It is one thing for sin to live in us. It's another thing for us to live in sin. It's one thing to be fighting against it. It's another thing to go into league with it and make a peace treaty. So the believer's battle with sin is raging. I'm told that Sigmund Freud, one of his counseling methods, one of his insights into personal problems, was that he would say something like this, the ship, your life, is not steered from the observation deck of the conscious, but from the cargo bay of the subconscious, right? So a lot of the things you do, you don't even know what you're doing, and it's coming out of the subconscious, and it goes back to your parents, and, and goes back to everyone else, and that's the problem. Paul would say, no, it's not the observation deck that is leading, but sometimes it's the cargo bay of the old nature. And we've got to subdue it. Paul said you've got to put it to death. That's a pretty aggressive act. 
You've got to take action to mortify the deeds of the body or else they'll proliferate. It's not just say no, it's going beyond that to remove. And the more precious Christ becomes to you, the more you see your sin. This was a great surprise. I thought when I became a Christian, sin would be less and less and less and righteousness would abound more and more and more. And thankfully there was some growth in that area, but what I didn't see was that the closer I get to Christ, the more I'm going to see of my sin. So although there may not be more sin, I see it more. That makes sense? The more you know Christ and you live in his light, the more you see your own sin and you're discouraged with it. This is Romans chapter seven. Aren't you glad you came? Wow. Verse 18. And I know, Paul says, that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. We have to remember that people are made in the image of God And there's common grace throughout the world, even in the lives of unbelievers. So there are many unbelievers who are very good people. And that's part of the grace of God and the image of God in their lives. But Paul is not talking about just general grace in his life. He's talking about his sinful nature. And there's nothing good in that. Now, Paul's not having a problem with a, you know, self-acceptance. This isn't a psychological issue where Paul says, I'm absolutely worthless, worthless, there's nothing good in me. He says, there's nothing good in my sinful nature. And so, I must battle that. And the rest of verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. By the way, Paul's kind of repeating himself. Did you notice that? And with deep anguish, says the same words, but seems to go deeper and deeper uh, into this situation of lament. Verse 19, for I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep doing. I don't want to do wrong, but I do it anyway, says the New Living Translation. And so this indwelling sin needs to be the focus of my Christian life to some degree as I put it to death. Here's something Christians rarely do. Get aggressive at killing their sin. You want to have an accountability group? Great. Share your besetting sins. And hold each other accountable to kill them and to go after them. I don't even know what my besetting sins are. Your spouse does. (laughs) Your friends probably do. Go after it with a passion. Do I take the law and beat those sins over the head? No, the sins will just laugh. Beat me more. Use the law all you want just going to make you feel worse there's something in me constantly pulling me away from Christ 
If I'm ignorant of this, it means that I'm ruled by it. If I'm oblivious to this, it means that it's already in control. Verse 20, now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Again, repeated uh, from the earlier verse, as Paul acknowledges that I stand with the law, that it's right and good and holy, and I accuse my own actions, and I declare it's not right. So his conclusion in verse 21 is rather helpful. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there. He calls it a law. If you go over this passage, you'll see that he says in verse 14, the law is spiritual. Verse 16, the law is good. And at the very end, the law is from God. It's God's law, verse 25. That's one law, but there's another law. And the other law, verse 21, is at work in me. Verse 23, I see another law at work in me. And it is called, verse 23, the law of sin. And repeated again in verse 25, the law of sin. One of the reasons I think this is a believer is because of verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. You know, an unbeliever really can't say that. I delight in the law of God. You, you read Psalm 119. It is, I love your law. Meditate on it day and night. That's the heart of a believer. Not of someone who doesn't know the Lord. John Stott said, if God has written his law in a book so that we might know it and whispered it into our ears so that we might understand it and inscribes it in our hearts, which the book of Romans tells us he does, so that we might delight in it, the law is good. It exposes our sin, but it expresses the character of God. And that's why it is spiritual, as we saw in verse 14. And I delight in that law. The unbeliever cannot say that. So the believer's dilemma goes from bewilderment to battle. This is verse 23. Verse 22, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But verse 23, I see another law at work, waging war against the law of my mind. And that would be the law that is holy and the law that he desires to fulfill and the law of God. And it's waging war inside of me, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is at work in me. O oh, wretched man that I am, verse 24. By the way, the, the Greek word for wretched is to be exhausted, usually in a military sense, having fought a battle for hours and coming away totally spent. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm in a battle and I've been fighting and I'm not gaining the kind of ground I want to gain. What is wrong? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The heart-rending cry of every believer. How can I get out of this? 
And that's why I love verse 25. Let's call this the believer's deliverance. And the deliverance, first of all, is uh, ultimate. Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The believer's deliverance in the first sense is eschatological. It is futuristic. It is looking forward to the return when Jesus comes. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. By the way, the word thanks is the word charis, which is grace. Thanks be to God for his grace. Because that's the only way I'm getting out of this. When Jesus comes, when we are resurrected and we are with him, When consummation has taken place and we are in glory, we will be delivered from this battle totally. It sounds very much like 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't it? Remember that portion of scripture? The sting of of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does that victory come through Christ? Through his death on the cross, he conquered sin. Through his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. Through his resurrection, he conquered death. He appeased the law of God in the eyes of God. And now he is our righteousness and our standing is his. We stand before the Father just as the Son does in perfect righteousness, and he is our deliverance. But then he goes to verse 25, and this is a good summary of the passage, but it seems like he's giving up again. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. I think the difference, if I could suggest it, is this. Going back to chapter six, if you yield yourself to sin, it controls you. You've got to fight against it. And sometimes it will win, but sometimes by the grace of God, you win. And there can be immediate deliverance by yielding to the Holy Spirit. Again, let me say, the Holy Spirit hasn't been mentioned at the end of chapter seven, but when you get into chapter eight, the Holy Spirit is all there. Now, I'm not saying that chapter seven is something we need to get out of and never will be in it again, because once we have control of the Spirit, we begin to live lives that are above battling with sin. That never happens. Robert Haldane, a great theologian, said, beyond this, No child can go, referring to verse 25. No child can go beyond this in this world. It will ever remain the character of the regenerate person in every believer and no one else that there will be two principles, grace and sin. The new person with surviving sin, flesh battling spirit, the laws of his members, and the laws of his mind. This is the truth of God and the experience of all of us. So it's realistic and important for us to recognize that the battle will go on till glory. Can I just say this 
it may sound harsh, but it's helpful. You will never be sinlessly perfect in this life. Not gonna happen. Some people will tell you you can be, and they are mistaken, if not liars. And again, I say, ask their spouse if they've attained to that level of sinful perfection. But when we see Jesus, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And the battle is not one that we're going to lose. By the way, in chapter 8, Paul is going to say we are super conquerors through Jesus Christ. So it's the death of Christ on the cross, and it's the Holy Spirit in our heart with which we wage war from a position of victory against the sin within and say no. But the battle is fierce. The believer's deliverance ultimately, when Christ comes back immediately, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Paul said in Galatians, so I say this, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Flesh is so powerful, it's gonna trip us up, but as we yield to the Spirit, there is victory. H.A. Ironside used to tell a story years ago about a Native American who came to Christ and he was sharing his testimony with his tribe and he said, you know, when I came to Christ, I, I thought that I was done with sin and that I would be able to walk in obedience to God. But then I found out it was not an easy thing to do. And he described it like this. He said, it's, it's as though there are two fierce dogs fighting within me. One is a good dog and it wants only my best and the other is a nasty bad dog and it's trying to ruin everything I cherish and the two are fighting against each other. And someone in the crowd raised up their hand and said, well, who wins? And the chief said, the one I say sick him to. Someone told me years ago, that's not a biblical illustration. (laughs) After studying Romans 7, I'm saying, yes, it is. Now, the the dogs don't have the same power, but both are powerful. And if I start yielding to the nasty dog, he's going to win some battles. So the fight is on. But with Jesus on our side, with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, let's go forward and have victory. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. Forget the law. It's not going to make you holy. It's a guide, but it can't help you. Yield to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, you've told us in the book of Romans that the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. You've told us that the sinful mind is hostile to the law of God. It does not submit to the law of God, nor can it. 
but the heart of a believer delights in your law. So Lord, with this perspective that Jesus is on the throne and Jesus wins, with this wonderful truth that the Holy Spirit resides in us to show us resurrection power, let us learn to walk in the Spirit so we will win the battles against the lust of the flesh. In your name we pray, amen.